walking in a country road And I been chasing after my shadow Hey, it's the Camino Podcast, episode 29. I'm Dave Whitson. Welcome Nobody back. This episode focuses on my other pilgrim activity. Some of you may be aware that I'm the co-author of a guidebook to the northern Caminos, three of the routes uh, to the north of the Camino Frances, the Camino del Norte, the Camino Primitivo, and the Camino Inglés. And over the summer, my co-author and I rewalked basically everything in the book, along with some other routes in the north that we hadn't previously had an opportunity to check out, with an eye towards making really substantial changes to the guidebook. And so it was a great opportunity, of course, to be on Camino, which is always great. It was an unusual summer because we weren't leading students. We weren't walking together either in order to cover all of the routes that we hoped to, which totaled well over 2,000 kilometers worth. We needed to just split it up. And so we each had very full experiences and a lot of different stories to tell. And ever since we got back, I've been trying to find a time for us to sit down and actually have an overarching conversation about the summer that we could record for the podcast. Because, you know, why have that conversation, which hopefully will be interesting to some other people, and not record it along the way? So... At long last, we've managed to pull that off, and that very extended conversation is the focus of this episode. So it's a little unusual. It's not multiple different interviews. Instead, it's a very long-form conversation, making for a longer-than-typical episode. But if you make it through, you will hear us talk about some of the new routes that I checked out, some variants on the Camino del Norte. You'll hear about my first experience on the Ruta do Mar, which is a route that connects the Camino del Norte and the Inglés. You'll hear Laura talk about her first time on the Camino Salvador, as well as a return trip to the Primitivo. And then we both had a chance to try out a couple of other new routes. I ended up on the Camino Vasco, or the uh, Via de Bayona, or the tunnel route. It has many different names. And Laura made it onto the Ruta Vadiniense. So if you listen to this episode, you'll hear a bunch of stuff about these different possible Caminos in the north. And you'll also hear some stories. You'll hear about my ill-fated experience with a dog uh, on the Ruta do Mar, which was unfortunate. You'll hear about my adventure touching the true cross in Santo Toribio de Libana. And you'll hear about Laura's experience, uh, what she says was basically the best albergue ever. So there are a lot of stories along the way in addition to some route-specific information. So I hope you find it interesting. It's a little different from the normal, but I think it's still good stuff. So check it out, and as always, thanks for listening.
I'm speaking with Laura Perizzoli, my co-author on the guidebook to the Northern Caminos, the Camino del Norte, the Camino Primitivo, and the Camino Inglese. Hi, Laura. Hi. You know, I was thinking originally when we got back from walking this summer that we'd be recording this podcast a couple months ago. But, you know, for a lot of different reasons, life getting in the way, it's been pushed back and pushed back. But it's actually kind of nice to have this time now to reflect on all the walking that we did as a way of just sort of reliving it when it's cold here in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, and the road's a bit farther away from our thoughts. Yeah, and as a result, all of the things that might have been a little bit unpleasant have departed from memory, and it's it's only the good stuff now. Yeah, it's true. So we have this guidebook, and it's still kind of crazy that we do. It goes back to January 2011. You know, We had walked the route, the Camino del Norte, with students a couple times, and so I just unsolicited sent an email to Jonathan, the head of Cicerone Press in the UK, and offered to create a guidebook on the Norte and the Primitivo. And crazy enough, he accepted the offer and, uh, and we were off and running. So what do you remember about that process of putting together a guidebook for the first time? Yeah, it was sort of crazy because it was something we had talked about really tentatively the summer before when we were walking the route. Mm -hmm. And so we had the notes from that, but then when we actually got to the process of writing the guidebook, I think a lot of it was totally unknown for us. I mean, honestly, some of my biggest memories are the amount of time it took for us to make the maps. Oh, and God, the maps. Both, like, <laughs> how much of a challenge it was and how definitely one of the biggest challenges for us still moving forward. Yeah, the text is relatively straightforward. I mean, people don't necessarily appreciate it today because a lot of times we'll get feedback that, you know, the turn-by-turn -turn directions are kind of excessive. But back in 2011, they were pretty important because the way marking was unreliable. So we felt like that was necessary. But the map ordeal was something unexpected and definitely where the learning curve was steepest. And we actually had two totally different versions of the maps that we produced. Yeah, that's right. The first one was working off of this uh, template from Cicerone, but they were all totally hand-drawn and honestly much more suited for the wilderness-type route, something in the mountains without roads or trails rather than the way that the Camino is. And then right before... <laughs> just you had been working on those for uh, weeks when and you were just about done when we get the email from Jonathan or from Lois with Cicerone saying good news we just got access to these national maps for Spain and we can use them in your book isn't that exciting <laughs> right it was both a moment of a moment of a lot of frustration but also excitement that our we knew that the maps would end up being better, but I wish that we hadn't spent so much time on them. <laughs> yeah, but then we also discovered that those maps weren't totally up to date either, that in fact, the new highway <sighs> being built across northern Spain didn't show up on them. That's right. That's right. I have a strong memory of spending hours adding those that highway in on Photoshop. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We were not just adding the Camino onto the maps. We were adding the new highway as it was being built. So anyway, the maps got done, the book got done, and it was pretty cool to have a guidebook created. And I feel like, and I think this was more true for me than for you. Like, 
I think I was so caught up in the afterglow of having this book that I was just so excited about it that I wasn't finding fault with it. I was just like really amped up about it. And then after it's in print for a year or two, you just start to become more and more aware of the things you don't like about it. (laughs) Right. And I think some of the things we knew pretty early on, or at least there were some things we knew might become issues. Like we knew that there was a lot of white space pretty early on when we, when we saw the proof from the book, but we didn't realize how much that would translate into extra weight. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And we do get a lot of comments on the weight of the book and some of that might be fixable. Other stuff is just sort of the standard of our publisher that Cicerone has a paper size and weight that they like and they feel good about. But there were other things that we potentially can change and can control. Like we would really like the maps to be better. Once they were printed out, they lost some of the clarity. They weren't as usable for navigation. We also recognized that we needed to get some elevation profiles in there. And so, I mean, the point is that we've, (laughs) we've been aware for a while of things that we would like to change with the book, but it's hard to make substantive changes to a book once it's in print because so many hours go into the layout that a publisher can't just constantly be making dramatic changes. So what was exciting going into this last summer was the book had been around long enough that Cicerone was open to the idea of a new edition and we had the time to commit to rewalking everything with an eye towards those substantive edits and that's what we did. Yeah, and so it was a pretty exciting summer because we both were able to fully walk the routes, the Norte, the Primitivo, and the English that we had wrote the guidebook on the first time, but then also to explore some of the other routes in the North that we had been interested and curious about walking and maybe including in the book that weren't sure if we'd have the opportunity to do that. Yeah, because the reality is that the title of the book, if we wanted it to be totally accurate, would be like some of the Northern Caminos, <laughs> not the Northern Caminos. So, you know, we're, we're hoping to actually come closer to that title and really assemble descriptions, coverage, and guidance to more of the Northern Caminos, so the routes above the Camino Frances. And we've done that now. So I thought it would be fun on the podcast to actually have the conversation, the debrief that we were going to have anyway, but record it and be able to share out some of the things that we saw, we discovered, we learned while rewalking everything in the book and scouting some new routes. So let's start with the Camino del Norte. And, you know, the way we ended up splitting up the walking duties is kind of interesting. Like I got all the beaches and you got most of the (laughs) mountains. So um, (laughs) which might make it sound like I was making you do all the hard work. But I think we'd agree that you got a pretty good chunk of the walking duties in the sense that we both like mountains a lot. And uh, so you got the Primitivo, you got the Salvador. But at the same time, I got the lovely Camino del Norte, which has plenty of hills Especially early on. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And so um, we don't need to talk through everything related to the route. But I mean, I do want to tell you about some of the new things that I encountered this time around. You know, one of the things that's tricky about the Camino del Norte compared to the Camino Frances and probably the Via de la Plata from a guidebook perspective is those other routes don't have 
the kinds of variants that the Norte does. Like, if you add up all of the trails that are linked to the Camino del Norte, whether it's official Caminos with yellow arrows or the GR with, with the red and white stripes or just assorted other options that are along the way, we're probably looking at something like 1,200 to 1,300 kilometers of total trail. So there's a ton of stuff to try to log. And then on top of that, I decided this time to start in France uh, because <laughs> more and more pilgrims are interested in the idea of starting somewhere around Bayonne, Biarritz, because so many people end up flying into that airport coming from London or from Paris. And, you know, it's kind of fun, right, to just get out of the airport and start walking. Absolutely. And there are some nice little French towns there, too. So. <laughs> I know that you like Saint-Jean-de-Luz, which is about halfway between Bayonne and Andai, just on the French border across from Irun. And so the walk that I did from Bayonne is about 40 kilometers total, maybe 45 all the way, going down through Saint-Jean-de-Luz onto Andai and then across to Irun. And it's really nice. You know, there are actually two routes going down. The Voie Littoral is the official Camino variant, and it has scallop shell markers, mostly stickers. But the downside of that route is that it is primarily inland. So it doesn't actually go along the coast that much. But there is a coastal option that goes right along the coast the vast majority of the way. And it's pretty gorgeous. Nice. And then one of the really interesting things is that, you know, once you come to the end, you actually have two options. One is that you can just walk all the way from the coast of Andai, inland, south, and then across the St. James Bridge into Spain and into Irun. Or there's a, a passenger ferry that goes from the beach of Andai across into Ondaribia. And so you could actually just continue the Camino from there. Yellow arrows pick up right from the dock. And so it's possible to walk straight on from there and bypass Irun. Which makes it a, a little bit different of a start. It totally does. Yeah. And, and in some ways, maybe some advantages to that because Irun is pleasant enough, but it's basically a modern town. There's not too much historical that survives there aside from, you know, the cathedral. Whereas Ondaribia is this really impressive walled town out on the coast. And to come to it from the sea and then to climb up the steps into the center makes for a pretty dramatic entryway into Spain. I believe it. That sounds like a good start to the route. What I want to tell you about in terms of the route is... Like the big thing for me this time around is to try some alternates. You know, we've walked a lot of the alternative routes when we've researched the book previously and when we've taken students on the Norte, but there are a few options this time that I thought really stood out. One is you can actually just walk straight from Ondaribia and you could reconnect with the main Camino del Norte pretty quickly, but you can also follow a GR that actually hugs the coastline from Ondaribia all the way out along this very little traveled section of the Spanish coastline, very rugged, until you reconnect with the official route much further on, about 15 kilometers on. And I know that we've, we've looked at this for a long time, 
and I finally got to do it. And was it was it what you imagined it to be? You know, I had imagined that there might be more ups and downs, and it was a little bit flatter than that. That's not to say it was flat. It was definitely not flat. There weren't a lot of trees. It was very rocky, but there were some spectacular viewpoints. And, you know, I just love that section of the coast. So over the days that I was doing this, because there are three different routes that you can take walking from Irun to San Sebastian, I just set up camp in San Sebastian, stayed there for a couple nights, and walked from Irun to San Sebastian in, in three <laughs> three different ways, um, which is uh, like the best kind of Groundhog's Day experience, you know? Like, if you had to redo one walk over and over again, it would be that one. That's the one. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, I, I don't know that I'm going to sell a lot of pilgrims on voluntarily starting their Camino by doing that walk three different times, but uh, it was pretty kick-ass. <laughs> And there were worse places to end up than in San Sebastian every night. Yeah, absolutely. The two other routes that I, gosh, you've got to make it back to do. One is walking from Santander. So the walk from Santander to Bo de Pilagos and then continuing on to Santiana del Mar, the reality is it kind of sucks, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's paved and it's through urban sprawl and there's really just not a lot of interest. But, you know, I'd been looking at maps of the region and there's this great coastline from Santander. And then I found someone on Wikiloc on a GPS site who had done it. And it looked like it was possible to walk almost literally along the coastline the entire way between Santander and Bo de Pilagos. And so I did that and it's possible. It's totally possible. And it totally changes the way that you think about that stretch. And for me, it changed the way I thought about Santander as well. Cause you know, on the Norte, you take the boat across from Somo and then, you know, for most of us, we're arriving in Santander, we're staying there. So you walk through the city a few minutes going past the cathedral to the albergue And that's most of what you see in the city because you don't really go exploring that much. And when you leave the next morning, you're not walking through a particularly interesting part of the city. So, you know, like, do you remember anything about Santander that stands out as a city? Not in a big way. I mean, there's the little castle or the summer home of Isabella kind of up on the hill. But I think that most pilgrims don't go there, right? But that's the only thing I can... Yeah, <laughs> yeah. the the Magdalena Palace. And you do have to walk a few kilometers out along the coastline to get there. And I think a lot of people are, you know, to voluntarily go and do like five or six K round trip at the end of the day. <laughs> that's unrealistic. So yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I think most people miss that. And it's a beautiful part of the city. But if you're walking along the coast, well, you're going to walk basically right past it. And then you're going to continue along the most famous beaches in the city, like the Sardiniero Beach. And you're going to wrap along there, and then you're going to climb up onto a hill going past a botanical garden and a golf course, and then ultimately past a lighthouse. And that's just the start of your walk to Bo. So it's like, it's a whole different world out there. Was that waymarked at all? Or were you just sort of... No waymarks. And so... For the most part, it's intuitive. Like the one place I got into some trouble was after the lighthouse, actually, where I didn't notice the trail right away that goes 
kind of to the right of the cafe that's by the lighthouse. And so I followed the road inland for a bit to a camping, and I I realized that I'd made a mistake and, and corrected it. But aside from that, it's basically you're trying as much as possible to stay along the coast. And, you know, there are a couple places where you do cut inland. You have to move inland to go past a cemetery near a town along the way. And, you know, there's some other things. But again, it it's fairly straightforward. I, I think especially with GPS coordinates or or with a basic map, it would be very straightforward for people to do. It's longer, of course, than than the walk to <laughs> Boas. Um, it's probably about 30 kilometers all told, maybe 28, still cleaning up the GPS to go from Santander to Bo. So it would be your full day walk, but it's gorgeous. And um, I think it's totally worth the trouble. Yeah, it sounds like it. It sounds like it'd be much better than the walk we do right now. Totally. The one other thing that I've got to mention is after Soto de Luina on the Norte, there has long been this issue where there is a split in the Camino. There are two different routes marked, and one is marked for Bayota, and the other is a left turn, and it's labeled Camino. And For years, the locals, and particularly the Hospitalero in Soto de Luina, has strongly discouraged pilgrims from following the route marked Camino and uh, has said it's overgrown, it's dangerous, it's hard to follow. And so most guidebook authors, most pilgrims have studiously avoided it. But, oh my God, it's incredible. (laughs) So the route that goes through Bayota is really nice. I mean, it's not on the road a terrible amount, probably about half the day. But the other half is on great little trails that are winding up and down, really pleasant tree-covered walk through a series of small villages. You're never actually on the coast, so you're inland a bit, but it's nice. But the alternative goes high, high up into the coastal hills. It is hard. Mm. It is a very (laughs) strenuous walk. And you'd want to go into it fully prepared because there's no water, there's no food along the way. But the views that you get of the ocean are incredible. So you're going, it's basically straight up for the first few kilometers, but it's like first paved and then a dirt road. So it's easier walking than it might be. But after that, you break the tree line and you are just on these great footpaths and unused dirt roads that allow you to see, I don't know, 30 miles, 40 miles of the coast, just these sprawling hills moving off in all directions around you. For me, it rivals that first day's walk from Irún to San Sebastián as the prettiest walk of the entire Camino del Norte. Oh, wow. That's so good. I I saw someone online describe it as the Hospitales route of the Norte, (laughs) (laughs) which... which, So really hard and really amazing. Yeah, and no resources, right? So, um, you know, you wouldn't necessarily (laughs) want to do it if it was cold, rainy, windy. But if you have sunshine, then, wow, it's, it's pretty awesome. Nice. Yeah, so that's like some of the things that stood out for me on the Norte this time. But it was it was pretty awesome. Like I, I covered almost every GR option that seemed potentially interesting along the way that seemed like something a pilgrim would want to consider. So we have so many more 
alternate options that we'll have way marked in the book for the next edition. And I think people will like that a lot. Yeah, I think that makes a big difference, especially because it seems like a lot of the alternate routes get you off of the roads and into the hills a bit more, or maybe onto a different type of scenic route, like closer to the coastline. Yeah, and it's one of the the challenges with the Norte that we are trying to document a pilgrimage, and a pilgrimage route doesn't always follow the absolutely most scenic stretch. Like, it's trying to follow the historical conceit, the route that we think is the one that most closely aligns with the pilgrimage. So sometimes that means that it actually follows a far less interesting option, like on the walk to Deba, going through Itziar, an inland walk where you don't necessarily see that much. But a lot of pilgrims who are walking actually really want to know about the coastal options. They want to be on the beach, even if it's not authentic, even if it's not the historic route. So, you know, we have to try to appease both of those groups, the ones who want the history and the ones who want the view. Yeah, and it's a tricky it's a tricky thing to to know which route is going to be best until you walk it and which route will really speak to which type of pilgrim. Yeah, I don't think that it's consistent, right? That what appeals to someone one day might be different the next. You know, if you're really tired, oh, yeah. sometimes you really just want some asphalt, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, that's true. So we split the Norte so that I walked it all the way along the coast to Ribadeo, and then mm-hmm. you picked it up from there. And somehow, magically enough, our walks align so that we actually intersected in person on that day and I passed the baton and then you were off and running on the Norte from Ribadeo. So what stood out to you as you rewalked this part of the Norte? Yeah, this part of the Norte was fun to walk because it had been a while since I walked it and and it was just nice to be sort of on a different route. I think the things that really stood out to me as major changes weren't that the route changed so much, but Mm -hmm that there were way more facilities for pilgrims. So hmm. that part of the route, as you start to get closer to Santiago, that starts to get busier. Before when I walked it, there were a couple of stretches that were pretty limited as far as albergues go. But now there are a ton of albergues along <laughs> the whole stretch. So originally, the stages were pretty set as far as where albergues were, and everybody would end up in more or less the same place. Mm-hmm. But now it's there are like many more albergues and some of the albergues that were there before have just grown or added beds. And so I think that was honestly the biggest difference. The way marking was maybe slightly better, but it wasn't bad the first time mm-hmm. around. So that wasn't a major difference, but it's definitely busier this time, which I think is true of all of the route. And I think that one of the things on display there is that as we move deeper into July, you know, we both start, started walking in, in June. And by the second half of July, the numbers really picked up. Because when I started the Norte, there were some nights when I just had a handful of other people in albergues with me. But by the mm. by the time I hit Aviles, for example, the beds were all full. People were sleeping out on the picnic benches. You can really <laughs> see that spike happen over the course of that month. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. And that's definitely something I saw um, at the end of the Norte. And too, I was walking it. I realized when I was in Sobrado dos Montes that 
a lot of the people I was walking with were timing their route to arrive in Santiago on St. James Day. And right. so I was really with a like particularly large cohort at that point. Yeah. When I was looking at the information that you assembled, the place that stood out to me was Miraz. Like Miraz used to be <laughs> like there was there was nothing there yes. as, until the confraternity of St. James opened their albergue. But even then, you would see these aggrieved pilgrims describing how they were waiting until the albergue opened at three or four in the afternoon. And there was literally nothing in the town. If the door was locked, they were out in the rain. There was no food. Yes. And now Miraz seems like almost you know a bustling metropolis. Yeah, it's that's definitely the area that has the biggest change. It's probably within like a three kilometer stretch. So it's not just Miraz, it's the town just before it, Alagoa, and where there used to be that one albergue run by the English confraternity. There are now, I think, four albergues, and then there's also another albergue just off of the route that's has maybe eight beds, something smaller, but the four albergues are all relatively sizable. And I stayed at a new one this year, Alagoa, with a super, super friendly host. He has a little shop in the back of the albergue that Hmm. actually was surprisingly (laughs) well-stocked, you know, for a space that's pretty small. It had, you know, he has like all the things you would expect, so the pasta and spaghetti sauce and whatnot, but a lot of fresh vegetables and fruit, which is kind of surprising for that type of store. Yeah. And while you were walking the Norte, I continued on from Ribadeo on the Ruta do Mar, which was a whole different experience. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So this is a pretty new route. It's been developed by the Amigos of Lugo. And what it attempts to do is connect the Camino del Norte with the Camino Inglés so that people don't have to cut inland and ultimately rejoin the Frances, but instead they can stay right along the coast all the way around to El Ferro and then follow the Inglés onto Santiago, which is a really appealing idea. I've been drawn to (laughs) this route for a while, and it seems like a natural fit for the book, right? Absolutely. And I've heard people talk about it, too, the potential of it, or the interest is certainly there. Yeah, because especially the the kind of person who walks the Camino del Norte is typically one who has walked the Frances, who deliberately is seeking out a different (laughs) experience. And so if they can avoid that kind of congestion all the way to Santiago... I think they're going to want it. So so this was a priority. We didn't know for sure if we'd get to some of the other routes that we got to, but we planned around me being able to check out the Mar. And it was an experience. <laughs> it's There are yellow arrows. They do exist, but they're quite sporadic. And so you are often guessing. And there are a couple of GPS tracks online that are available. But I kind of went into this wanting to basically operate like just a blind pilgrim. That is to say, with no outside resources, just trying to piece together the route based off of what I could see. And it's hard. Uh, (laughs) um, One of the things that's interesting is that while the Ruta do Mar exists, there's another route that exists that overlaps with it a good chunk of the time. And it's called the That's Camino right. Natural de la Ruta del Cantabrico, or we'll just call it the Cantabrico for short. 
and it aims to follow primarily the coastline between Ribadeo and Vivero, which is well along the Ruta do Mar. And so what plays out a lot of the time is people end up walking the Cantabrico more than the Mar because the signposting is excellent. It's really reliable. There's these red posts that are very consistent along the way. And it also generally follows the coastline much more reliably than the Mar does. The Mar cuts inland a fair amount, but the Cantabrico has some incredibly striking bits of coastal views, including like for people who know Ribadeo, Basically, you walk out the front door of the albergue there, you turn right, and you are following the coastline and you are on the mar. And you were also at the same time on the Cantabrico. So it's really convenient. Except for, is it tricky to figure out which route you're trying to be on? <laughs> so if, you're t- if you are trying to be on the mar, um, you have to prepare for the fact that the waymarks are going to let you down early and often. <laughs> so I think the two routes officially line up between Ribadeo and Praes de Catedrais, the uh, cathedral beach, which is the most famous beach in northern Spain with these incredible rock structures. And then the mar turns away from it very, very soon after the beach. Uh, there's a left turn off the boardwalk. And so over the course of the next few days, I was trying to walk both. So the Feve train actually overlaps with the route fairly regularly. So I would walk on one and then I would take the train back and walk the other. And the Mar was frustrating, but it also takes you to some places that the Cantabrico doesn't that are really important to pilgrimage. And most significantly, it takes you to the Cathedral of San Martín de Mondoñedo. And there's a Mondoñedo on the (laughs) Camino del Norte. This is a different Mondoñedo. It's actually believed to be the oldest cathedral in Spain. It has these really incredibly well-preserved frescoes on the wall. I mean, you would love it. It's just a, a fabulous space to visit. But there's some other great spots as well. The, there's a town called San Ciprao, which is right on the coast. And it has this little tiny peninsula that juts off of it with a lighthouse. And Vivero has this impeccably well-preserved old town also on the coast. So there are a bunch of really pretty spaces along the way. There's, of course, nobody walking it. So if you're looking for solitude, then the Ruta do Mar is great for you. As long as you're not looking for Ruta do Mar waymarks, <laughs> the Ruta do Mar is great for you. So things were moving along okay until suddenly they weren't. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so what happened? <laughs> so it was a long day, and I was walking from San Cipro, and the, one of the issues with the Ruta do Mar is that there are some long stretches without good accommodation options. And so I decided that I was going to try to pull a long day and I was going to walk from San Cibrao to a place that was, uh, you know, about 50 kilometers away. And it was going okay. I mean, there was one colossal route finding breakdown where I took a series of wrong turns, but there was a nice guy out in a village who walked me back uh, to get back on (laughs) track. So things were okay. But then, I, you know, I kept walking and I was following along a road and I was waiting for a waymark for something that would actually move me in a, a particular direction. And it, it didn't appear. And so 
you know, through a series of different approaches to route finding, I determined that I needed to take a left turn and walk down a, a couple of minor roads, and that eventually I would arrive in a village where I thought I would be able to find my way back on the route to Domar. So I, you know, it was it was going to be okay. And um, and then I walked past a house. And and there was a dog, and the dog, he had a nice little dog house that looked cozy, and uh, the dog got up, and he started walking right towards me. And he's walking at a totally measured pace. He's not barking, <laughs> he's not growling, he's not making a noise. Right. So you're thinking nothing of this. I'm thinking nothing of this because, you know, like every dog in Spain barks at you. And so this one's not even barking and he's not charging. He's not showing any indication of hostility, but he walks (laughs) right up to me and he stops and there's still no indication. Like there's no flick of the tail. There's no noise. And then... (laughs) And then I get a really bad feeling. Um, and right when I get that bad feeling, he lunges for my neck. Oh, God. <laughs> and and in, oh <laughs> in that split second, I swing my right arm around and hit him in the, in the, the face. And he clamps down on my right arm. And... Somewhere in there, I, I think I start shouting, probably. I'm not, you know, maintaining total zen yeah. calm through this. But um, he, uh, so he, but the good news is he doesn't get my neck. And then he's back down on the ground, almost in like a seated position, having fallen back from the, the brief contact with my arm. And in that second where I think he's about to spring back and attack me again, I managed to kick him in the head and knock him back a couple feet. And then he just sort of looks at me and then turns and just as calmly as he walked out to me, walks back to his doghouse and lies down in the doghouse. I didn't even, this is so insane. And in that moment, I looked down at my arm and I haven't felt any pain but i quickly discovered that my arm from my elbow down is totally red not like a trickle like the entire thing is red and there is a puddle on the ground Uh. underneath my my arm and at this point i am uh definitely yelling and the the woman of the house comes out at that point and looks at me in terror <laughs> and says in Spanish, what did you do? <laughs> and so you've done it. <laughs> and so I, say, I inform her of her dog's indiscretion. And, and she says, what did you do to the dog? <laughs> what? <laughs> and so I explain I did nothing. And so she starts shouting for her husband, who is out in the field. And he comes strolling over very casually. <laughs> Everyone is very... And meanwhile, your arm's gushing yeah. blood. Everyone's very calm in this village. And he, <laughs> he looks at me and asks what happened. And I tell him. And he asks me what I did to the dog. 
Everyone's very concerned about what I did to the dog. So um, <laughs> nothing. I, I yes, I tell him I did nothing, and so he very calmly and methodically goes and finds a stick, and then walks over to the dog and beats it for uh, ten or fifteen oh, seconds. In the meantime, um. the woman of the house has gotten some stuff to to wash off my arm, and she's rinsing it off, and she's dabbing it with gauze. And I'm just saying, I need to go to the doctor. And I'm saying that, like, over and over. And the, <laughs> the husband very calmly walks into the house, and I have no idea what's happening. Because, you know, when you're in shock, you're not as attuned to the intricacies of the Spanish language as you might be at other times. <laughs> and so I'm yelling and eventually he comes out he's changed from his work clothes into his nice clothes for the drive into town and then he <laughs> he drives me to a clinic in Ortiguera a town about 15 minutes away where there's a clinic and I go through the process of you know getting shots so that I don't turn into a werewolf and um, <laughs> getting stitches and all of the other things to have my arm put back together again so that was exciting oh, <laughs> yeah that sounds like a terrible experience it was <laughs> glad, uh, glad it wasn't worse yeah it, it could have been a lot worse and the real bummer in all of it was I knew that I you know based on my experience with the doctor I was going to have to return to the clinic a couple times over the next few days and given that I didn't feel like I could continue along the mar and I think I was probably a little shaken and you know the mar with the with the totally unreliable way marking it's very rural there aren't a lot of opportunities for supplies or help along the way i just felt like i couldn't continue on that so that night i caught a train to el ferro and i arrived at like 10:30 p.m. <laughs> walked to a hostel checked in and collapsed into bed so that was a long day oh man Oh, wow. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, so, yeah. so ended my experience on the Ruta Domar, <laughs> <laughs> which was now now I really want to go back. Now I want to go and, and finish it up. But uh, but instead, I was on the Inglés, and I was in El Ferro, which, you know, is a, is a really nice town. Yeah, it's a nice little, nice little port city. And I didn't appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> I woke up the next morning, and for the first time, my arm hurt. <laughs> You know, like the shock of the previous day and the painkillers and everything else, you know, my arm never really hurt, but it woke, I woke up and it was throbbing and I couldn't really move without it hurting. And, you know, by this point, we were pretty far into the trip and the countdown was already underway and I was hoping to be able to go and walk the Vasco. So I had to keep moving. <laughs> But at the same time, like, I had no food, and I needed to eat right away because I needed to take pills. <laughs> so I had to take right. all, of these, all of these medicines now that I had gotten from the doctor. So so began my most miserable day on, <laughs> on the Camino. But, you know, here's, what's, here's what stood out to me. So I sat down to eat a croissant, and, you know, they serve a croissant with a fork and a knife. It's not like us uncivilized Americans <laughs> who just, like, pick it up with our hands and eat it. And I couldn't, I couldn't actually like use the knife. Like my right 
hand, like I couldn't hold because the my forearm had been ripped open. So I'd lost like oh, all dexterity and strength in my fingers on that hand. Like tying my shoes was almost unmanageable. Putting on a bandana was brutal. And then I almost had <laughs> I almost had a meltdown in this bar in El Ferro when I was just trying to eat this damn croissant so that I could take my pills and I couldn't cut the thing. <laughs> and it wasn't until five minutes had passed that I finally realized that I could just say screw it and eat it with my hands and no one would care. But <laughs> I was a little bit addled that morning. <laughs> oh man <laughs> it was bad and <laughs> and so i start walking and you know so i'm walking along the inglace and i'm in a terrible mood like i don't want to be walking i'm angry about the dog i'm mad at life and really just everything is bleak and so you know i'm and it's rough too because it's not the most it's not like you're thrown into a beautiful feral itself is nice but the walk out of there is not particularly scenic it is urban (laughs) sprawl for (laughs) kilometer after kilometer and so yeah i'm feeling really bad for myself it is a big uh pity party all morning (laughs) and then the craziest thing happens and i don't think i told you about this when we when we met in santiago and it's it's the the coincidences are are crazy so so i get to fene which is a small town that is actually like connected to Ferrol by a bridge, but you walk for a while <laughs> along the Inglés to get there, unless you, you know, are tempted into the shortcut. But I get to Fene, and um, there are two bars right next to each other that have big scallop shell displays. They're trying to capitalize on the pilgrim traffic, and I go into one of them. And again, I'm still feeling bad for myself. I'm just staring down at my coffee and um, another croissant and just getting some more food in my stomach so I can take another pill. And there's a like a Swedish guy who comes over and strikes up a conversation with me in English. Really friendly guy, wants to know what I'm doing, didn't realize the Camino Inglés went through there. And so we have a really nice conversation for a while. And, you know, that gets me to lift my head up and there's a TV and I start looking at the TV after he walks away. And then on the TV at that moment is a news program. And on the news program is the man who killed Denise Thiem, the American pilgrim who was killed on the Camino Frances months and months and months earlier. For some reason on this day, he was leading investigators on a walk through the area where he killed her. So on TV, right in front of me, live or or recorded a, a couple of hours earlier, I don't know which, is this guy pointing at the spot on the ground where he left her body. And again, like I, the whole morning had been one giant pity party for me with like a dog bite on my arm. And, and that was healthy sense of perspective. <laughs> that, you know, my ordeal was not quite so bad. And so I decided to get over it and just <laughs> get back to walking. And my arm stopped hurting as much. And I ended up going that day, like I, I thought I was going to stop in Ponte Duerme. And then I got a second wind and I, I walked a bit further. And, and, and all of a sudden, what had been an ordeal became, you know, much easier. So it's crazy, though. 
It's crazy. Like of all the days, you know, months down the road, that was the day that that was on television at the time that I was in the bar. That's so strange. <laughs> it's, uh, I mean, it's just so strange. Yeah. So, um, so as I was on the Inglace, you were working your way towards Santiago, but you had by that point already completed two other routes earlier on your walk, all of the fun, <laughs> or a lot of the fun mountain action. And that included you doing the Camino Salvador for the first time. So I've never done it. I'm totally jealous. Tell me about the Salvador. <laughs> Yes, the Salvador was great. So the Salvador leaves from Leon and takes you to Oviedo. And so it's a route that, you know, we've passed through Oviedo and we've passed through Leon, both cities a bunch, but haven't ever done the alternate, this other route. It goes right through the mountains and it's very much like its own little Camino. Like one thing that stood out to me was that a lot of people on the Salvador had gone just to do the Salvador. So it was... Hmm mostly people from Spain and mostly doing like kind of a week trip or almost a long weekend, even for some of them, you know, taking a couple of days off of work and doing it in five, five days and doing it that way. So that was a little bit different than most of the other routes, but I think the Salvador, so it goes right through the mountains and you leave from Lyon and it's pretty typical, you know, like getting out of a big city through urban sprawl. <laughs> right. But after the first day, really, you get into the mountains and the next two days are beautiful, beautiful mountain walking, a lot of elevation. And but I mean, you you would love it. I don't know how anyone could have <laughs> The hardest part wasn't the hills, though. No, <laughs> no, that was the best part. <laughs> the hardest part was there were not very many facilities at all. Hmm. And I knew that going into it, like I knew that, you know, the biggest grocery store was in La Robla. And then there's another town you get to, La Robla is the town I ended in on the first day. And there's another little town the second day mm-hmm. of the walk that that has some stuff. But I went through there too early for a store to be open, which I anticipated, you know, stops for my breakfast and whatnot. But I think it was the third day couple of the cafes that existed in towns were closed for, you know, closed oh, until noon or yeah. <laughs> closed for Sunday or closed on Mondays. <laughs> or closed when and you so, were there. Yeah, essentially closed when you were there. So I had a, a morning where most of my food for the day consisted of a little part of a baguette I still had left over from the first day and a couple of bars from a vending machine and a couple of coffees from a vending machine. (laughs) That's brutal. (laughs) It was pretty brutal. Um, And it was funny, too, because it was after some of the most beautiful walking. And it was one of those things where you realize, though, how much having food impacts your walking speed because I had been like really just feeling so great walking through the mountains, you know, up and down a lot of like elevation loss and gain and these really beautiful views and then come into a part where it's much more through these really small villages and little farms and still a mountain type of landscape, but much more like what you get on the Primitivo Mm-hmm. You know, not Hospitalis Day, but sort of the pattern of that walking. The up and the down. Yeah, little ups, little downs, but not these huge... You don't feel like you're in the mountains in the same way. Mm. And I just realized, like, how slowly I was going. <laughs> 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 for, 
pretty absurd. You know, fortunately for me, there was a cherry tree at one point, so I was scavenging, <laughs> scavenging fruit from that, but it was a really special walk. The end of that day, though, ended really nicely for me, which was fortunate. I stayed in this albergue, which is, I think, the best albergue I've ever stayed at, hands hmm. down, in Bendenuetos. I'm trying to think because I'm, I'm messing up the name. It's a little bit off of the route, about a kilometer, and I and I walked up to it. It's up a big hill, but Sandra and the albergue, she'll pick you up in the town that's actually on the route and drop you back off the next morning. Hmm. Um, but she was one of the most wonderful hosts I've had, and this albergue was I mean, it was beautiful and felt so warm and and I felt so welcome there. I actually was the only pilgrim staying there, I think because it is a bit off of the route, but I had heard only good things from other pilgrims who'd stayed there. She cooked me this huge vegetarian meal, like just for me. <laughs> and I remember <laughs> it was like salad and a tortilla and bread and soup <laughs> and there's so much food that I was able to like, pack the rest of the tortilla for myself for the next day. So wow. one of those comical things. Yeah, yeah. Where you have like I had the thing I needed all day, suddenly I had like so much of but Sandra's really made it into this really special, special albergue. And I arrived late, you know, it was a day where I should have arrived around four. But I didn't roll in there till after six, and I arrived in in rough shape, just emotionally a little <laughs> bit like tired and worried that the albergue was going to be closed, like the bars had been earlier in the day. <laughs> yeah, and to arrive late and to be the only pilgrim there and still have her cook this amazing meal for me and just be so warm and welcoming was really really special. Hmm. And so you followed that route into Oviedo, and then you got to do the Primitivo again, which, again, I'm very jealous. Yeah, so I followed that route into Oviedo, and it's not a great walk into Oviedo. The good news that the people who are working on the Salvador are really trying to find a way to get into Oviedo that's not as much on the highway. It's a lot mm. of pavement right now. Hmm. But I do know that they're like working on finding other alternatives. But the Primitivo was great. I mean, I think it's one of my favorite areas to be walking, and I think you feel the same way. Yeah. It's so <laughs> um, nice. It's so nice. So Oviedo's, I mean, Oviedo's great as always, but getting back on the Primitivo felt really good. It's just, I really love that walk, and it felt nice after the Salvador just because there are more provisions, so it's, it's an easy <laughs> route in that regard. You know, one thing that was surprising to me, again, is just when we've walked the Primitivo before in the summers, there's definitely a crunch for beds. And there has been in the past because so many of the albergues in the past have been at 20 kilometer intervals or 30 kilometer intervals. So your stage, everybody sort of falls into the same stages. Mm -hmm. And many of those albergues have been pretty small, you know, 20 beds, yep, 18 beds. But there are now albergues in almost every town. And so while some of the albergues are still smaller, I think people just fall into much different patterns. So even just right off the bat, you know, it used to be that your first day leaving Oviedo was either seven kilometers up to Escomplera or, you know, a longer slog 
30 kilometers to right. San Juan to Via Panada. But now Grotto has an albergue. And it's not huge by any means. It was definitely full when I got there. But I, I left Oviedo late because I actually did this little detour to... The Naranco churches, right? <laughs> yeah, to the to, to the Naranco church. And there's another one up there, too. The, the Naranco church is really special. It's this beautiful pre-Romanesque church, and it's set up in the hillside. And you can actually connect the walk up to Naranco directly back hmm. to right near Lorenzo. Yeah. It's just like that first town you walk through. So it's really easy. It's just you follow one road, essentially, and it brings you there. I think it's definitely a detour worth doing if you are at all interested in pre-Romanesque architecture. <laughs> and why wouldn't uh, I think you the be? the hours are tricky. And why wouldn't you be? It, it's really special. It's a good one. And Grotto now has an albergue. And I think that was just one of the biggest things I noticed on the Primitivo this time is that, like, for instance, Berdusado, where you get to right after Hospitales Day, now has three albergues. Hmm. And so two of them are private. And then there's also one of the bars, you know, that honestly, I don't know that we've ever been to, or I hadn't spent any time there. It's not right on the Camino. And it, I just think it didn't used to get a lot of business. Now has rooms available. And a lot of people were staying there when I walked through Berdusado. Also, I think they're super reasonably priced hmm. and, and easy to reserve. And, I do know that a lot of things in Verdu Seda were full from people making reservations, but it meant that when I rolled in without a reservation, there were still spots at the municipal albergue. Oh, nice. Yeah, so that's an area that's really traditionally been a big pilgrim crunch, and it's not a problem at all anymore. Yeah, and then you checked out the walk that connects the Primitivo with the Norte this time, right? Yeah, I did. So... There is an option leaving Lugo to walk through this town, Friol, and walk from there to Sobrato. And so, essentially, it's about 60 kilometers. It was a thing, you know, I looked at trying to do it in one day and realized it just wasn't going to happen. And it's a really good option. So, you leave Lugo, and right after you cross over the bridge, you turn on to there are these green arrows and it's very well waymarked it's almost surprisingly well waymarked <laughs> so you leave lugo on this other route and i did have multiple people stop and tell me i was going the wrong way however <laughs> <laughs> so that was a uh, something to be aware of but the route itself is pretty nice i was definitely the only pilgrim walking i didn't see anybody else so if you want a couple of days of solitude before you arrive in santiago i think it's definitely a good option in that regard but again, there are no provisions really on the way and not much water actually either. So basically between Lugo and Friol, you have to plan to not have any stops and to have brought you know, enough food and water to last the day. It's about a 30 kilometer walk. So it's not crazy, but you have to keep that in mind, I think, when you head in. Yeah. But the walk itself is nice. The first half of it's along the water and then along this river, kind of winding in and out through the woods. And Friol itself is really nice, like a nice little town. Mm -hmm. But there's not an albergue there. There's a hotel that's very pilgrim friendly. So I think they have pretty good pilgrim deals and offer, you know, breakfast and dinner if you want, if that's what you want. But the town itself also has all of the facilities available. And then the walk from Friol to Sobrato is also very well marked. 
but is much more following small country roads. Hmm. I think it's an interesting option, but it wasn't the type of thing where I would say, I think if you want the solitude for from it, I think that definitely makes it worth it. But if you're just looking to escape the Francaise for another day, you know, it's hard to say if that's quite worth it, quote unquote, in that regard. It only saves you like what, 12, 15 kilometers of Francaise in the end? Exactly. And it adds a lot of kilometers of walking. And so, you know, if you find yourself ahead of schedule or if you really want to visit Sobrato in itself, the monastery there is really beautiful and really special. There's an albergue inside of it. So pilgrims can stay inside the monastery, which is a really cool experience. So I do think that's an added draw, is if you're trying to go to Sobrato instead of just go straight to Santiago from Lugo, it provides one more really exciting stop from a historical perspective on your way into Santiago. Yeah. And so that was our plan. <laughs> it was yes. the Norte, the Mar, the Inglés, <laughs> the Primitivo, the Salvador. And then, well, we made good time. Yeah. <laughs> and we ended up with the capacity to check out some more new stuff. And so I headed towards the Camino Vasco or the Via de Bayona or the tunnel route. It has lots of different names. And uh, <laughs> and you were on the Vadiniense. So these were these were new for each of us. Yeah. How was your experience in the tunnel route? It was fun. So I, I mean, we both <laughs> love Basque country, right? So like, yeah. this is a chance to get to see a whole lot more of Basque country. And the Camino Vasco, I'll just call it that. Like, I feel like that's the best name for it because like the defining feature of the route for me is getting this new angle on Basque country. Because the reality is that like the Camino Francais through Basque country, you know, what you're seeing is is really the Camino Francais. I mean, uh, the, the pilgrimage there has reshaped those towns so much that in many ways, that's the defining feature of those towns. And the Camino del Norte in Basque Country, those are a lot of tourist beach towns. So so even there, there's there's a lot of outside influence. But the, the Camino Vasco, you are going through really Basque towns that are not filled with tourists or pilgrims or other outsiders. Like they feel very authentically Basque. And, you know, I was walking there in late July, early August, and I saw a total of four other pilgrims the whole way. <laughs> I saw oh, wow. one, yeah. group, one group of three Spaniards who were traveling together. And then there was one Dutchman who was working to complete having walked every single official Camino. He just has one or two others (laughs) left to go. So it's the hardest of the hardcore there. And despite that, it's impeccably waymarked. And there are lots of albergues. So you have a lot of options for sleeping. The walking is straightforward. And there's some cool stuff along the way. The downside is that there is a lot of pavement, especially Mm. early on for the first few days. You're on paved roads a lot. But what you are getting along the way is a lot of Basque towns and like one of my favorite is one of the largest Basque towns in the area, Beasain, which is a very long town. It's one of those towns that you feel like you're spending an hour walking through. <laughs> but it's a town that just made me 
really love the Basque lifestyle again. It's just aligned with these long boulevards, tree-lined, tons of outdoor cafes. And then across from those, you have like big playgrounds and outdoor spaces. I've never seen it in the other parts of the Basque country I've walked through, but there's this really elaborate recycling system with all of these different color-coded bins all along the road. And I mean, it's just like, I don't know. There's something that's like really organized, but also like vibrant, active, outdoorsy about the region. And I, I felt like I appreciated that in a way that I haven't when walking through other parts of the Basque country. So even though it was on pavement a lot in the first few days, I appreciated that. And then the route changes very dramatically. After the third or fourth stage, you know, depending on on how you break it up, you pass through the village of Zegama, and then you have an uphill stretch. And it's a challenging uphill. It's about eight or nine kilometers of, of heading uphill. And that's where you arrive at the tunnel, uh, for which the route gets one of its names. It's St. Adrian's Tunnel, and it's a natural cave. It's smaller than I expected. Like, I was walking up to it, and I pulled my flashlight out, and I was ready for some, you know, spelunking. <laughs> but um, you don't need a flashlight. It's short enough that you can clearly see through the other side, and there's enough light to find your way. But it's really cool, like, completing the uphill. Like, I was there on a day that it was mostly ensconced in clouds, but I could see this chasm emerging up on the hillside, and I walked into it, and there's a, there's a hermitage inside of it and some ruins of an older structure there and then when you walk out the other side it's almost like you have been teleported (laughs) to another place because the landscape shifts a little bit and pretty dense trees there's a well-preserved old medieval road that you follow through the trees for a bit And then you start descending. And as you descend, you start to leave the trees behind. And now you are in countryside that feels more like the area around Pamplona on the Frances. So things open up a lot. They get, it's drier. It's more arid. There's more wheat being grown. Like all of a sudden you have transitioned from like industrial Basque country to rural agricultural land. And it's not quite instantaneous, but it is over the course of an hour or so, the world changes dramatically. Nice. It's cool. And from there, pass through uh, one of the major Basque capitals, Vitoria, which is an incredible city, great cathedral, some really impressively preserved medieval buildings. So like wooden buildings that are 700 years old in the city center. So it's really neat space. And then a little bit after that, there's a route split, and you have two options where you can continue along the Camino Vasco to Santo Domingo de la Calzada and connect with the Camino Frances there, or you can follow what's more typically referred to as the Via de Bayona at that point and walk to Burgos and connect with the Frances there. So you have two options. And my hope in walking both (laughs) was that I'd be able to advise people on which one was better. (laughs) (laughs) However. (laughs) However, they both have their charms. Yeah. And that makes it hard. You know, the walk to Santo Domingo de la Calzada, the real selling point is you pass through this hill town, Salinias de Burradon, which is a great little hill town. Totally surprised me. And then you climb up 
to a little gap in the hills. And all of a sudden, like all of La Rioja unfolds beneath your feet. It is, I don't know, maybe a top five vista for me on pilgrimage. Oh, wow. Like anywhere. It's incredible. It is wine country just spreading out for miles and miles and miles all to the horizon. It's incredible. Like that view alone. And then you continue and a little ways later you arrive in the town of Aro, H-A-R-O. And you know, if you've walked the Camino Frances, you've passed through La Rioja, and La Rioja is famous for wine. But Aro is the capital of La Rioja, and it is very much the capital of wine country. Like, as you are walking into the town, you are passing one wine vendor after another, like one (laughs) giant spot filled with barrels um, on display after another. Like if you like wine, (laughs) you need to go to Aro and check it out. So that route definitely has its charms. But the other route to Burgos had another one of the most memorable walks for me of the entire summer. It's a walk to a town called Pancorbo, And along the way, you pass through these giant craggy rocks. And there's this one spot where there are two highways, a railroad, a river, and the trail all converging (laughs) between these these towering rocks. And it might sound kind of hellish with all of that (laughs) congestion. And yet it's this really cool engineering feat and experience where you don't necessarily feel the traffic. You just feel these monumental crags bending humanity to their will. So um, <laughs> it's it's a pretty cool walk and one that sticks in my memory. So, so again, I can't really advise people on the better option. They both have their charms. I enjoyed the Vasco, and I think there's a great argument for starting your walk there. You know, if you don't want all of the crowds of the Frances, you could start there and you could walk to Burgos and rejoin the Camino there. But there's another option if you don't want to walk the Frances, but you want a mountainous experience and, and maybe something to set up a subsequent walk on the Salvador and the Primitivo, and that's the Ruta Vadiniense. And you got to check out that route. Yeah. Do you want to talk about the walk into Potes from the, the Norte since the Camino La Viniego leads up to it? Yeah, absolutely. I did a couple detours this summer, too, off the Norte. One was to Covadonga, which was really cool, but we'll set that aside for now. The other was to <laughs> Santo Toribio de Liebana, which is a monastery in the hills that is said to hold one of the largest surviving pieces of the True Cross. And as a pilgrimage destination, it's actually right up there with Santiago and and Rome in terms of the the significance of the relics that it's said to possess. Obviously, it doesn't have the bones of an apostle, but this is a very significant relic that they have there. And so the route officially starts in San Vicente de la Barquera on the Camino del Norte. And if you're walking there, you'll see that the waymarks, in addition to the yellow arrows and the scallop shell, you'll start to see a red cross and red arrows. And those are the symbols of the Camino Le Baniego. And so the two routes coincide. They overlap from San Vicente 
to Sergio, and then on to the small town of Muño Rodero. And that's where the route split now happens. So you turn right to stay on the Camino del Norte, and you continue on to like Unquera and Colombres. But if you turn left in Muño Rodero, then you are on the Camino Le Baniego. And it takes, depending on your pace, two to three days, probably three is best, from San Vicente to Potes and Santo Toribio de Liebana. And the walk at the beginning is exceptional. You're on a riverside trail called the Senda Fluvial, and it's beautiful walking for the first eight kilometers. The rest of that stage is mostly on roads, but there are some mm-hmm. stretches on there where you are on a road that is through exceptionally scenic territory, basically between two craggy mountains on either side with a steep, steep drop down to a river well, well below you. So um, even though you're on what is technically a minor highway, there are almost no cars and it's really pretty. And then the next day's walk, for me, was probably the hardest day's walk of the entire summer. There are two... Yeah, of course, you had all the mountains, so... (laughs) So I did, I I did. I was living easy uh, a lot of the time, but this had two significant ups and downs that definitely had me pretty tired, but still a really enjoyable walk, much more off-road than the previous day. Very rural terrain leading ultimately to uh, Potes, which I'll, I'll leave for you to talk about. It's a beautiful town. And then I made it up to Santo Toribio in time for mass. And I'll just tell a brief story and then pitch it to you for the Vadiniense. So I was at Santo Toribio. I arrived an hour and a half before it opened in the afternoon. And I was envisioning this really nice, quiet, peaceful afternoon at this monastery. <laughs> And instead, there were about 50 8 to 10-year-olds <laughs> who were there with, I don't know, maybe five camp counselors. So I think they had walked <laughs> up for the day, and they were pretty rowdy. But it was fine. It was not a big deal. So time passes, and then they open up the church, and we go inside. And all of those kids and a bunch of tourists who have driven up in their cars all bundle into this side chapel where there's a priest speaking to them. So it's it's like standing room only. It's very full. And I listen in for a bit standing at the back, and it sounds like the priest is just sort of talking through the history of the place. So I go and I walk around the church a bit more, enjoy the fact that, you know, with everybody tied up in there, the rest of the church is, <laughs> is empty. So I'm walking around, and then the, the priest finishes his talk, and everybody lines up. And I feel like everyone's just going up for, you know, like a pilgrim blessing type thing, right? Like the, the priest is finished, maybe he had a short mass, and now he's giving everyone a, a, a blessing. But as the line gets shorter, I go and I take a look, and it turns out that he has taken the relic out of the case. <laughs> and, and he's holding it there, and everyone is allowed to come up and, like, touch it and... This is blowing my mind. And so, of course, I get in the line and I go up. And and sure enough, I get to go up and touch the true cross, which is pretty cool. And so I'm I'm feeling like this is this is really incredible. I can't believe they let everyone just come up and touch this incredibly sacred relic. And so I'm feeling pretty good. And I walk outside. And this is not a lie. This is not an exaggeration. (laughs) (laughs) I walk out the front door of the church and there is a rumbling peal of thunder <laughs> oh, oh good. In, in the distance so 
I feel like I've done something wrong at that point. But um, <laughs> but fortunately, I was not hit by lightning on the walk back down into Potes. So that was my experience on the Camino Le Baniego. And then you swooped in a few weeks later to pick up the trail from there. Wow, I am shocked that they let you touch uh, the <laughs> cross. So I got to Potes and... Potes is this great little town. I mean, you know, what I found most amazing is, you know, so many people are there for other tourist pursuits. So some of it's like mountain climbing and rock climbing or just to be up there. But the albergue, there's a pilgrim albergue in the center of town Mm -hmm. and like the dead center of town. And it is this river that runs through the town and the pilgrim albergue is tucked like under a little restaurant a bit, but you have, I think, one of the best views of the river and sort of the town from there in the whole city. And it's, you know, it's like a five euro yeah. little public albergue. And I mean, it's beautiful. So I felt really lucky like staying there. And you have to be a pilgrim on either, you know, on the Lebaniego or the Fadiniense in order to stay there. And so there were only, I think, four other pilgrims sleeping there that night. And yeah. So that was a really good way to start that route. From there, it's an interesting route because it is in the mountains, but it's an area that's fairly well populated. So the first day, because like most people either go to Fuente Day or Espinama, mm-hmm. it's about like 20 kilometers, 25 kilometers, was great. I mean, it was hands down one of my best days of walking. You leave from a town and often go up into these little like local footpaths. So often you're coming out of a town and going uphill, 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 and then coming back down into the next town. Mm-hmm. So like there's a really good pattern where you'd get off road and like get into the countryside and you can feel yourself like you're in the mountains, but you know, you're like winding your way deeper into the mountains. So sometimes you'd have big open vistas but often it was just like, you know, nice mountain walking near some pastures or farmland or like in a forested area. So really, really beautiful and like kind of special just in the way where every time you come down into a village, the villages there are old and like pretty tight and small, but the people living in them were super friendly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the types of people who are offering you water, or offering <laughs> you food. So that was a really great day. And then my next day, which is the day that I walked through Fuente Day and like sort of went over the high point of the route. And people write about it as being so hard. <laughs> it felt so disappointing to me, actually. <laughs> it's worth um, noting, of course, that by this point, you had already walked the Salvador and the Primitivo. <laughs> so you had, um, you yeah, were, you were yeah. fit. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, my disappointment didn't come from the lack of challenge in the walking. No, the thing that actually felt disappointing to me was you walk up to Fuente Day, which is this, I don't know, interesting little little spot, very clearly a tourist destination. There's a funicular that goes up the mountain, and it's pretty, but it's kind of a launching pad for a lot of different activities. From there, you have these beautiful craggy mountains in front of you, and it's what you've been looking at. The whole previous day, you see this this mountain off in the distance, and you like walk closer and closer to it. And you get to the base of it, and you can see some trails leading up through these rocks through this beautiful mountain pass. And to the left side of 
going, you know, sort of directly up into this mountain, there's a dirt trail. And that's the Camino. It goes on this like dirt trail. And it's definitely, it's still beautiful, but you can see some of these GR routes going up into the heart of the mountain on, (laughs) on little footpaths. And you just skirt around it, you know, over what it would be the actual like pass. And it's probably, you know, almost certainly more historically accurate because why would you choose the harder way when you can go a slightly easier, more gentle way? Mm -hmm. (laughs) But to me, I definitely kept thinking, like, why why am I not going through the mountains and instead on this dirt road? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think there's room for some more exploration there to find ways to maybe string together some GR excursions to get off the official route, much like we do on the Norte. Absolutely. And that was my biggest thought there was, oh, if I had another day, I would come back. You know, if I had a little bit more time, mm-hmm. I would try to find a different way to do this and see if there's another option to string it together. Because it's a beautiful, beautiful walk. It just feels like you're kind of skipping out on it <laughs> when you're on this the dirt trail. But then after those two days, actually, those were definitely the highlights of the trip of that route for me. After that, the Camino follows a lot more pavement, like some small roads, but also some of the small highways. And so you're just on the side of the road for a very long time. So it was caught with a lot of pavement for the next three days. Some of it's smaller roads, but it's a lot of road and a lot of pavement. So that's sort of a bummer. And the other thing, you know, there just aren't a lot of other pilgrims, but unlike the tunnel route, the Vasco, there also aren't a ton of pilgrim accommodations. There are a few albergues set up, particularly for pilgrims, but a lot of the places you need to stay if you're trying to walk a 20 to 30 kilometer stage are in hotels or hostels. So Hmm. it's definitely a little bit more expensive right now, too, than some of the other routes, just from a perspective of a bed costing, you know, 30 euros maybe a night instead of five to 10 euros a night. Right. Well, here we are. Yeah. (laughs) We've made it. That was a summer well spent. One of the great things that I hope you might have picked up about these different routes in the north is that there's this incredible amount of customization that's possible. When you first walk the Camino, you kind of feel like there's just one route. There's the Camino Frances, and there might be a couple variants along the way. You know, do you go to Samos or not? It's kind of uniform, and there's one route, and you follow it. But in the north, there are all kinds of possible combinations that you can piece together. Want to just maximize your time spent on the coast? Well, take the Norte to the Mar and on to the Inglés. You avoid the Frances the whole time, and you're on the coast up until the very last couple days, with the occasional inland variant or jaunt on the Norte. Want a mountain-intensive experience? Well... You could take the first part of the Norte, which is quite hilly, and then veer off on the Vadiniense, and then from Mancia de las Mulas to León, you're on the Frances for one stage, but then you veer off on the Salvador and the Primitivo, and at that point, you're almost on to Santiago, so mountains almost all the way through. You could start on the Vasco 
join the Francais, you could hop in a bus and connect back to the Norte. There are so many different options for you to create the experience that aligns with your own interest. And I think that's something that's really exciting. And the more that you dig in to these different root variants, the more that you realize just how unlimited the possibilities are. While we have a guidebook available on the Norte, the Primitivo, and the Inglés, and we may ultimately have some sort of guidebook on these other routes, I want to make sure people know that we have a lot of information that we're putting out there for free. And so if you go to the Facebook page for the Northern Caminos, you'll find really detailed posts describing a lot of the route discoveries that we had over the course of the summer. I've posted some extended reflections on the Camino Forum. And on northerncaminos.com, we have a complete accommodations listings for the Norte Primitivo in Inglés, and all of our route updates for the book are listed there as well. So, you know, we don't want people to feel like they're bound and they have to buy the book. We want to make sure there's a lot of information out there for free for anyone who wants to use it, because we want to make it easier for pilgrims to walk these routes, because we do love them so much. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. Thanks for checking out the stories. We'll be back to the stories of other pilgrims in the next episode. Keep in mind, you can get in touch with us at CaminoPodcast at gmail.com. If you have a topic you'd like to hear an episode focused on, if you have a story you'd like to share, love to hear from you. And you can also interact on the Facebook page, facebook.com slash CaminoPodcast, or the Camino Forum. Again, really, really great to hear from you. Thanks as always for listening, and we'll be back soon. Almost, almost. Baby, my baby, episode. Baby,